Let's continue this morning as we move through Amos in chapter 9, looking specifically at, uh, well... We had in the bulletin verses 9 through 10, but the reality is, is we're really, or excuse me, 5 through 10, but the reality is this morning we're really going to look at verses 5 and 6 as we get ready for what lies ahead of us as we've looked over the last couple of weeks at the kind of bold, even shocking statements that the Lord makes like I have fixed my eyes upon them for evil and not for good, we have kind of taken a a very microscopic approach to the text and so I want to kind of pan away a little bit this morning and take more of a telescopic look that is not to take small things and make them look bigger so that we can understand them better but to take things that are actually monstrous in proportion and be able to see them as big as they truly are and let's kind of rewind a little bit and kind of put our minds back into the larger context of the book of Amos the reality is is that the sin of Jeroboam the first the very first king of the northern kingdom of Israel was not simply demonic paganism but instead Jeroboam thought he could fashion himself or probably more accurately speaking refashion for himself God in the manner that he thought that he needed him to be that he could make a God that fit his purpose and having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation they immediately fell into the gravest of depravity for as is often the case, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. They plunged into a very particular kind of madness that Scripture speaks about when they believe their own deceitful hearts above the truth of God that was set directly before their eyes. And having continued in this manner for generations during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam the first namesake, and two years before the great earthquake, Amos, the simple shepherd from Tekoa, didn't hear, but he saw. He saw. And I think today we will see the evidence of the fact that he saw and just didn't hear the Word of God unfolding in his ministry. He saw a word from the Lord. As is written in Amos chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. When a very particular God shows no partiality in righteous judgment for there is an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any that has ever come out of hate and so the word that Amos saw was a word of woe a word of woe to the people of the Lord a word of woe particularly to those who were the least willing to be woeful those who felt at ease those who felt secure. Man, you talk about, and I, we're getting there, but I'm not going to do it today. You talk about a word for the United States of America and the church therein today. Those who sit in the pews that have checked their boxes, they feel secure. They feel at ease. Their feeling does not match reality. For they are neither easy nor secure. You ask yourself, when you look at Amos, you go, why would these people who have all of this information, I mean literally all of this, about the nature of God. Why would they continue in their own denial unto their destruction? And the reason is, is because they bring their God in their own hand. In their mind, they haven't abandoned God. In God's mind, they've done something worse. They've replaced Him with a caricature 
who they wish he was, who they think he ought to be. And the tragic thing is, is when, when your God looks an awfully lot like you, you end up looking awfully righteous. When in fact, you're not. And such provocation, and it does provoke God to anger. Such provocation will cause a holy God to swear. And having none other to swear by, he swears by himself. He swears the promise and salvation to his people, and he swears death to those who would trample him underfoot. And so Amos will see a hard word. As a matter of fact, the word that Amos will see according to, according to his opponents is a word that is unbearable. That, that the land and the men that are in it cannot stand. He will see an unbearable word. And yet, in the strength that God alone supplies, Amos will bear it. The word is this, that silence will fall in Israel. And we spoke earlier about how we are awash in the richness of the gospel. And you can't chunk a rock. If it was my granny Manus saying it, she'd say you couldn't chunk a dead cat. You couldn't throw a dead cat without hitting the front door of a Baptist church in Sebastian County, Arkansas. Friends, there was a day and time when Israel was more awash in the Word of God than we have ever dreamed. They were a nation of lawyers. And yet in their midst, silence will fall. The effectual Word that is the means by which salvation comes would no longer be spoken in their midst. No word, no salvation. And the Lord does this not out of default, but out of the intention of righteous judgment. He tells them, you cannot run from me. In Amos chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. And if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight in the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Now, friends, that's some heavy stuff. And there is no way around it. That's some heavy stuff. Because here in just a minute, God's going to talk about stuff like, I touch the earth and it boils. This is the same one that says stuff like, you know, I, I, I create light, I form darkness. There is none other besides me. I'm a consuming fire, all, all that kind of stuff. This is heavy stuff. You know, this, this isn't some plaid-clad loud preacher that's hollering at you. This is... Him in whom the fullness of deity dwells. Who through him and for him and by him are all things. And in him all things hold together. Amen. Saying, I've fixed my eye on you for evil and not for good. This is heavy stuff. And so what do you expect 
I mean, if you've got a God that is going to say that sort of thing, then what do you expect next? If you read Amos chapter 9 and you get to the end of verse 4, then what do you expect to happen in verse 5? I mean, is, is this the high-velocity blood splatter? I mean, is, is this the, my, you know, my sword is drenched with blood out of Isaiah? Is that what you're going to see next? Yes. And crazy enough, no. And not one or the other, but both. After the statement of Amos chapter 9 verse 4 that I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good, you know the very next thing, and I want you to just back up. We did the technical work about three weeks back. Remember when we talked about the visions that Amos saw? And this, I know this is ticky-tacky stuff, but remember when we talked about the visions that Amos saw? And the first vision that he sees, Amos speaks more than God does. God shows him some stuff and says, what do you think about that, big boy? And he goes, oh, no, it can't be that way. Right up until God shuts his mouth. Because that's what happens when the Lord reveals himself to his creatures. They shut up. In the next vision, Amos only speaks when he's spoken to. And then, as redacted as he can possibly make it. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it short and simple, man. Keep your mouth shut, keep your head down. Yes, sir. In the third vision, Amos doesn't speak at all. And so what is said next is not Amos. This is <laughs> one of the few sections of text where what you will find is the Father quoting the Holy Spirit who was by definition, if you're familiar with your New Testament, quoting the Son who is one with the Father. What happens next is a hymn. It's a song and it's not one, actually it's not one at all, it's two. And it's not two that the people would have been unfamiliar with. It's two that they would have been incredibly familiar with. It's two that you and I would be familiar with. But unfortunately, we're only familiar with little bits and pieces of it. Instead of the whole thing. What we see in Amos chapter 9 verses 5 and 6 is the sound of the hymns of the temple. It's the kind of stuff like you hear in Psalm 46 verse 10 where it says, Be still and know that I am God. Or Psalm 104 where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. We sing this all the time. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Rejoice. And you go, man, when I look at Amos chapter 9, or just basically any of Amos, even though, <laughs> you know, you think to yourself, when you think to yourself in Amos chapter 1, you're like, man, he's got the volume turned up as loud as it'll go. Turns up, turns out he doesn't. And it just keeps getting louder and louder and louder. And so by the time you get to Amos chapter 9, you're like, dude, <laughs> like, I, from a spiritual perspective, you know, if you want to compare it to music, this may be like some kind of thrash metal, but it's not a hymn. And yet that's exactly what you see in verse 5 and 6. Let's, let's go back to 4 for context, okay? Here it is. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts... Now, if you have been here for this series, you know that this word host literally means armies or war. 
the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of armies, the Lord of war, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rise like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord, that be Yahweh, is his name. You know, man, that, when I read that, that doesn't sound like a, a hymn to me. I would propose to you that perhaps far too often not always but far too often that which we think of as being hymns well far too often the reason that doesn't sound like a hymn to us is because the things that we think of as being hymns are very far removed from what the hymns of scripture are And I would like to make a note at this point. And you can reference the praise that occurred before this sermon. How thankful I am for a choir master that labors to make sure that our hymns do reflect the ones of Scripture. It's not always easy to do. Sometimes that means you don't get to sing the cool, new, trendy thing. <laughs> Sometimes that means you don't get to sing some of the old cool things. But instead the ones that reflect the truth of the gospel as it is presented to us from Genesis to Revelation. I'll tell you guys, if it wasn't for the fact that God himself was saying this, I suppose if you put it in modern times, and Amos had said verses 5 through 6 instead of the Lord himself, then he would have had to pay copyright on what the Lord had said in the Psalms. Amos chapter 9, verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, is a direct quote from Psalm 46. Now when you look at Psalm 46... Psalm 46 is one of the most highly quoted psalms in all of the choir book of psalms. And when you look at Psalm 46, people are typically quoting verse 1 or verse 7 or verse 10. And so they're going to read like this, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. They understand that these are songs that were sang in the temple. That you know, I know we don't very rarely would use you know a hymnal anymore, but that's basically what you're looking at. This this is the songbook of the temple, and so here's number forty six, and it's one we quote a lot. We quote stuff like verse one: "God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble." We quote stuff like verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We quote verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. And friends, they ought to be quoted. Over and over and over and over and over. But Amos quotes verse 6 and 7. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Man, you ought to be quoting... Psalm 46, verse 1. You ought to be quoting Psalm 46, verse 7. You ought to be quoting Psalm 46, verse 10. And you ought to be quoting Psalm 46, verse 6 and 7. As a matter of fact, the fullness thereof, if you really want to do it justice, then you have to take the whole thing 
What it says is this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And you thought it was just a song. Turns out it's a prophecy. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Let's just translate it like it is. The Lord of war is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations upon the earth. They are singing this as praise in the temple. How he's brought desolations upon the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Man, here is a truth that is avoided like the plague in the church today. At the end of days and the consummation of the age, when the peace of Jesus Christ shall reign... He will bring that peace by the shattering of His enemies. It's not going to be peace. It's going to be peace. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. So let me tell you something. Ladies, men, children, whoever. The next time that you're a frazzle with yourself and try to find your sinner by saying, be still and know that I am God. Make sure that when you do that, it is not in a blasphemous way. Because that is how you be still and know He is God. It's not spiritual Prozac. It's not spiritual self-help. It is the reality that the people of God have the peace of God when He destroys His enemies so that there is no more war. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now friends, let me tell you something. When, when, you, when your mama's got the cancer, when your spouse is off the rails, when your kid has got something wrong with him and they can't figure out what it is, or worse yet, has nothing wrong with them physically and has everything wrong with them spiritually and you know their condition, be still and know that I am God is not going to cut it. Psalm 46, if you don't dice it up into little bitty chunks and pieces, will absolutely cut it. It'll get it done. And so here is not Amos. This isn't Amos. This is God speaking to Amos. Showing him, I have turned my eye on them for evil and not for good. And I mean, 
two, two chapters back, Amos is arguing when he's talking about famine and, 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 and locusts. He's going, oh Lord, they can't handle famine and locusts. How in the world do you make the argument they can handle that the God of creation has turned his eye on them for evil and not for good? You can't. So God, you understand... This is God singing. He's singing. He's reminding Amos of something that he already knows. It's not just Psalm 46. He continues in verse 6 and says... That the Lord is the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. Here, he's not pulling from Psalm 46. Here, he is quoting Psalm 104. The popular quote in Psalm 104 is verses 1 through 2. If you're going to find it on a greeting card or you know a mug, all the cliches on your inspirational day calendar, pull off. Those are sweet. If you're going to find it on the Jesus junk, what you're going to find is verse 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But Amos quotes verse 3 and 4. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. And yet the fullness thereof is bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment and stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of the chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment the waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they might not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Hey, Dad, you think we'll sing the Ministers are a Flame of Fire hymn this week? <laughs> the problem, I think, is that we think we think like modern Americans. With SUVs and iPhones and ball schedules, text messages and appointments. And when I say we think like modern Americans, I mean we think like Westerners. We think like well, if you're going to say we think like Westerners, you got to say we basically what we think like is Romans, which you might as well say we think like Greeks. Or if you want to put it into scriptural terminology, we think like Gentile dogs.
And even though we claim, and, and please don't be offended, unless you need to be, you know, I'm using we in a pretty loose sense here. So I pray that it doesn't splash on us, particularly at Mount Zion, but it might. I pray that it doesn't splash on me. But it has. And the sad thing is, it probably still is. And I don't even know it. We, we speak as the church, as those who have encountered God. Huh. We're going to sing about that tonight. You know, one of the one of the most popular um, most popular studies in the last fifty years is encountering God. And man, it should be. It's great. <laughs> we speak about those that say, "Man, we've we've we have God in us." That we are his temple, his dwelling place. This is the place that he tabernacles according to his spirit. And yet, the way that we talk about God and the way that we dissect his word and pull just certain little bits and pieces out. seems to me to describe someone who saw God in a sky mall catalog more than has him in them. Because when you look at the men that saw a word in this scripture, they just don't approach him the way that we do today. They just don't. Are they uncomfortable? Yeah, they look uncomfortable. Some of them look like they're about to drop dead. And yet, in the midst of their discomfort, they just grab the two biggest handfuls that they can possibly get. It seems to me, and look, guys, I'm not... I'm, I'm talking about me. Like when I look back over the course of, and, and hey, look, I'll fight you over it. I've been saved since I was seven years old, but I got to tell you, the Lord saved me in spite of myself. How about you? And man, I was ignorant and arrogant about what I thought he was supposed to be. And what scares me today is the fact that I may well still be ignorant and arrogant about things that he hasn't even turned the light bulb on for yet. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's given us his word and here he is going, this is who I am. And you see him in Amos pronouncing a word of judgment and evil against Israel and he is singing about himself. Things about him that we are easy to love and easy to like. Be still and know that I am God. I burn the chariots with fire. He is our fortress. He is our help in the day of trouble. I touch the earth and it melts. When you look at Scripture and you look at the men that see the unbridled glory of a holy God, it looks different from what we typically see advertised as popular Christianity today. It just does. There was a day that I was angry about this. And, and there is some righteous anger that still exists. But there was a day when I had some fleshly anger about it too. I heard to tell you what it does right now is break my heart. Job chapter 42. 
Job was a righteous dude. You guys know this. We quote this like at least four or five times a year. I at least go to Job 42 four or five times a year. Sometimes I go to Job 38 just to make Damon's day. So, Job's a righteous dude, man. As far as righteous dudes go, and the Lord had a purpose for him that Job didn't understand. and Because of that, Job got put through the wood chipper. And the Lord never felt obligated one time to give him an explanation as to why. Because see, when you create something out of nothing and then hold its existence together so it doesn't disappear into nothing, and that's all simply by your grace and your own power, you don't really owe an explanation to that. And so Job gets it pretty tough. And when you see God give an explanation, it's because He's gracious and kind and good. And so He does. Job had been questioning, why is this happening to me? And why are things so hard? And if God is good, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And all these sorts of things. And as has often been said, Job is playing checkers and God's playing 12-dimensional chess. And so, you know what God does? He says a lot of stuff to Job. But more importantly, He shows Job himself. The Lord himself shows up and he's like, this is me. This is who I am. Let me tell you, big boy, this is what I do. I do it of my own accord. I don't need your input. Satan's over here talking to my ear. I really don't need his input either. And yet you're all playing a part. And once Job had got about four chapters of an eyeful of who God actually was, this one that he had legitimately worshipped, legitimately worshipped. Man, he was God's man. But had not seen. It says that Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? <laughs> Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. <laughs> I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let me tell you what Job didn't have the time to do, and that was to accuse God. He didn't say, well, I've seen you, and let me tell you, I've got a couple of issues with your character. I don't think it's appropriate that you would let evil, that you would ordain evil to come upon your people. I don't think it's appropriate that for the last seven years I've been sitting out here in the ash pile scraping my sores, and everybody around me dies except for the woman that won't quit nagging. I don't think it's appropriate that you would say, I've fixed my eye on them for evil and not for good. Job don't have time for that. You know what Job has time for? Bow the knee. I'd heard of you, but now I've seen you. And having seen you, what I do is I despise myself. I despise myself and I repent. Man, I'm not just sorry. I'm turning from that. I'm leaving it behind. Moving on to something else. My intention was evil. My heart was evil. Why? Because I desired evil things. And I've got a load of you. And buddy, I am out. The interesting thing is it's not just Job. It happens time and time and time and time again. You, you, you can see it in Ezekiel. You'll see it in Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll see it in the Apostle John. In the Revelation, you'll see it in Paul. On the road to Damascus, you'll see it in none less than Isaiah himself, which the Jews held in the highest revere among prophets apart except from Moses. In Isaiah chapter 6... Once upon a time, we did an entire family of God camp on Isaiah chapter 6. 
Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that being Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple, and above Him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And you understand, this is free. Seraphim translates out of the Hebrew to mean winged, fiery serpent. I don't know what these cats are, but they are a different ball game. If you or I saw one, we would fear for our very life. And when they see him, what they do is cover everything they've got. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of war. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the fountains, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then what did Isaiah do? Did he contend with the Lord? Say, why are you this way? Or why have you made me this way? That's the argument that Paul's going to make, or that Paul's going to say that false men make later. Why have you made me this way? If you're holy, why have you made me where I'm not and I'm underneath your judgment? Why? doesn't say any of that. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here. And I, I pray this isn't false mercy. Because in Amos, which is our primary text, we haven't got to God's mercy yet, though it's coming in a couple of weeks. But we haven't got there yet. So I don't want to jump the gun. But in our secondary text here in Isaiah, which I feel gives me some traction to do this, in the midst of Isaiah's woe, he was not at ease. He did not feel secure. Now isn't that crazy that that's the best place that Isaiah could be? Boy, today we want to take Christianity and we want to make it, we want to use it to make everybody feel at ease and secure. Friend, Christianity should only make you feel at ease if you belong to Christ. If you don't, it should make you ill at ease. Now, if you belong to Christ, buddy, be secure. Amen. But let's not sell cheap security. Like it comes to everyone. Just, hey, hey, let me tell you something. Everybody's secure. It's okay in Christ. No, friend, if you don't belong to Christ, you are not secure and you are not easy. What you are is woeful and condemned. Only in Christ comes security and ease. Nowhere else. And so while we try often to sell it as this is the thing that makes everybody at ease, the reality is, is what this is, is the invitation to come and die that you may in death find ease. And so here's Isaiah. And while we try to sell, Christianity is the thing that I make, all, make everybody easy. The reality is, is the best thing in the world that can happen for Isaiah is that he is a man undone. He says, woe is me. The word literally has the, the context when he says I'm a man undone. It's like the, the door popping off the hinge. He's coming unwound. And in the midst of that ill ease, 
not Isaiah that does something. It's God that does something. Salvation is not a bargain. It's not a contract. It's a miracle. And it is a miracle that will cause you... You say, well, what about me? Okay, what about you? Scripture says that salvation accompanies the people that are saved feeling a certain way, believing a certain way, and confessing a certain way. And you go, well, then what about... And man, it says that. So you go, well, what about me? Okay, what about you? What about you? All things, Colossians chapter 1, were created through Him, for Him, by Him, and in Him all things hold together. You feel because He holds your feelings together. You think because He holds your thoughts together. You confess because He holds your tongue and your vocal cords together. You want to see somebody changed? You want to see the people in Uzbekistan? It was talked about earlier. You want to see one of those guys born again? You want to see your children born again? You want to see your spouse born again? You want to be born again? The way that happens is when the one that's holding you together right now changes who you are. This is called the new creation. You were the old creation before. And when that old creation was created, it it didn't, out of a vacuum, make a decision to exist. He brought it into existence out of nothing. And so too, He brings into an existence the new creation. And you go, but yeah, but Pastor Brian, I like existing. I want to exist. Of course you do. He made you that way. He made you that way. And if you're sitting there right now going, well, man, listen, I don't want woe is me. I want legitimate security, the kind that you see in Christ. You know why you want that? Because he's making you want it. Now, there's some good news in that, friend, because let me tell you something. God's not divided. He's not self-contradicted. If He's causing you to want it, it's because He wants you to have it. So come get it. Come get it. You go, man, that sounds a lot better to me. Amen. It sounds better to me too. Come get it. Come on. You, do you understand what this means? It means you can't be stopped. If you desire salvation, it cannot be denied to you. That's right. Because He made you desire it. And He's the same one that gives it. And so if He's the one going, I'll give it to you, and I'm going to put it in you to want it, then I can't stop you. Satan can't stop you. You cannot be stopped. One of the things that I love about giving to missions is that you know you're giving to a sure bet. The fix is in, friends. The fix is in. For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. called him, he justified him, he glorified him. And so here's Isaiah. And I know I'm getting ahead of Amos, but somehow this turned into a gospel sermon. I'm not even sure how. Probably because you got God singing. So here it is in Isaiah chapter 6, man. Woe is me. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what happens then? What happens then is God is what happens then. 
not preachers and not, not denominations and not Baptists and not little country churches on Main Street America. What happens then is the work of a sovereign creator. One of the seraphim flew to me. Notice that the sovereign creator uses means to execute his purpose, which I pray is happening today as the fat boy in plaid is running his mouth. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Friend, let me tell you something. If you're on that side of the gospel and you're like, okay, you're telling me that the reason that I want it is because he desires for me to have it. Why is this deal so hard? Because salvation is picking up your cross. That's why. He expected it out of his son. He expected it out of his adopted sons and daughters as well. The coal's going to be hot. And he's going to shove it right up in your mouth. And it's going to burn, man. There's stuff about me that nobody dislikes more than me. There's stuff about you that nobody dislikes more than you. Stuff that you don't even want to admit to yourself. But you'll admit it when it's got a blister on it the size of a golf ball. He had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar. Guys, let me tell you something. The book of Hebrews tells us that the one of the reasons that Christ condescended to live among men and to become flesh was so that he would have understanding and therefore empathy with the way that you and I are tempted. It was his blood, it was his sacrifice upon the altar that will buy your salvation. Well, if I'm going to be doctrinally correct, it was his blood upon the altar that bought your salvation if you are saved. And that's his fire. He knows exactly how hot it burns. He's not requiring anything of you that he hasn't required of himself. He took it from tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Your sin has been paid for. It has been covered. The debt is clear. Now, I want you to notice the difference in Isaiah from before for he saw God. Now look, if you read the first five chapters of this, you'll find out that Isaiah knows all sorts of stuff about God. Yeah. More than me and you. But then he saw him. And when he saw him, something changed. You go from a man that is self-confident in his own ability to parse the truth of reality in the first five chapters to a guy that is literally coming unwound because of what he saw and then God acting and doing something and all of a sudden we get this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. A guy that was coming unwound, drooling on himself, flopping around like a rabid raccoon, 30 seconds before is now going, I'm your guy, send me. That's right. Why? He's not the same human being he was before. That's why. And you go, man, that's some rough stuff. Yeah, it's got a glorious outcome. When you look at Amos and you look at God going, I have done this. I have fixed my eye on you for evil and not for good. You go, man, how can you do that? That's not who you're supposed to be. No, what you need to do is shut up. 
and wait because the next thing he's doing is singing. And you go, yeah, but he's not singing about stuff that I like. Wait. Just wait. Do you understand? That is faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of that which is not seen. Don't talk to me about your faith if you need God to ante up. Wait. You know why God is singing in Amos? And you know why he's singing what he's singing? Because look, I I, want to go, you know, let's want to be textually honest. All of the stuff that's easy to quote out of Psalm 46 and Psalm 104 is the Word of God. It is no less valuable than the stuff that God Himself quotes in Amos. Because God quoted it the first time. It's all of equal value. The problem is not with what the Word of God is. The problem is the way that humans like to pick it apart. So why does the Lord choose in Amos to quote the parts He quotes? Because He's quoting Himself. I have a tendency to repeat myself. It aggravates some people. It makes me feel silly sometimes. And uh, But I feel okay about it because God repeats Himself all the time. He tells the same story over and over and over. So, if God is quoting God, if God is singing God's lyrics in Amos chapter 9, why does He choose to sing the ones He's singing? Why does He choose to sing the ones that say stuff like, I burn the chariots with fire and melt the earth, instead of saying, be still and know that I am God? Why does He choose that? And the only conclusion that I can come up with is the most directly logical one. And that's because that's what his people need to hear at that moment in time. Or as he would say through Solomon in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is a people that needs the fear of the Lord. That's what they need. If there is going to be salvation, that is where it is going to come from. And if I may be so bold, I do not consider myself in any means, any manner to be a prophet, but I do consider myself to be a pastor. And so if I may speak pastorally, it is what America needs. They need the fear of the Lord. They have heard enough about the comfort of the Lord apart from the fear of the Lord to the point that we have seen where it has led them. We have comforted them in their depravity. We have comforted them in their rebellion. We've comforted them in their sin. And the reality is, is the reason that you need the fear of the Lord is because the fear of the Lord is fully manifest in Jesus Christ Himself. You want to know what the fear of the Lord looks like? Look at Christ. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. Isaiah is going to continue uh, after the uh, wood chipper events of Isaiah chapter 6 
About five chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11, the Lord is going to tell him this. We're going to read it on Christmas Eve. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When Christ came in the flesh, the incarnation that we looked at on the last Wednesday night series, He came in such a way that in Him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And amongst other things like counsel and might and wisdom and understanding and knowledge, what was manifest in Jesus Christ is the fear of the Lord. A fear that according to Solomon is the beginning of wisdom. You say, man, I, I want Jesus, but man, there's just so much here. And, and, and Pastor Brian, you're talking about stuff, you're referencing stuff that some of these guys that have been around here for 15 years are nodding their head at because they heard a sermon or a Sunday school series like literally 80 months ago. And, and I don't even know what you're talking about. And it just seems very overwhelming to me. And how do I even begin to get my hands into this stuff? Look, dude, it's okay. It's all right. The beginning of wisdom, its genesis, is the fear of the Lord that is Jesus Christ. That's where you start. And, buddy, that's a pretty good place to start. You've, you've got something in your hands here that you can say, okay, the very fact that I want this is evidence that God wants me to have it because He's holding all my thoughts and emotions together. And so if I want it, the one that's giving it is causing me to want it. That's a pretty sweet deal. There, there, you should have some confidence there. All this kind of junk that people talk about, well, I'm, I, I've done too much stuff and I'm too... Dude, he thrives on that kind of stuff. That's why Paul said he chose him just to make a point. Let's find the nastiest one we can find. That one. He's glorified in that kind of stuff. That's a sweet deal, man. If you're sitting there and you're like, man, man, salvation is something I want, but I don't know. Listen, if you want it, dude, get come get it. If you want it, come get it. It is the litmus test that you are called of God. How do I get started? Easy. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And just like Isaiah and just like Job and just like Paul and just like John, just like Peter, just like me, he will use that fear to do something that is spectacularly marvelous. It's not like any other fear that exists. It will not repel you. It will not push you away. It will draw you to him. Remember when you were a kid and you went up to Bell Park for the first time and you peer over the edge and it was really freaky but you just mom would say back off and dad would go oh Sharon let the boy be a boy right it just drew you he will draw you he requires much. He'll create it all. He'll create faith. He will create repentance. He will cause you to despise yourself when you previously loved yourself. And this will all be you. It won't be apart from you. It won't be something that's thrust on you from outside like you're some marionette puppet. It'll all be you and it'll all be Him because you are the miracle that He is doing. You're it, man. 
God doesn't just make clay pots. He makes sentient, thinking, feeling beings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is manifest to us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It's not, a, it's not an extra. It's not an add-on. It's a treasure. And, and I'm going to show you here in just a second. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 33. So you can go ahead and flip on over. But understand, you say, how in the world, how in the world can you find joy in Amos chapter 9? I find joy because God is singing. But yeah, he's, but he's singing about destruction and the world melting and, 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 and the chariots being burned with fire and, and hey, look, look at me, I lay my foundations upon the earth and I do whatever I want. How do you find joy in that? Because the fear of the Lord is manifest in Jesus Christ. And so is wisdom and so is understanding. So is salvation. It all comes together. It's not a salad bar. You don't get to pick and choose. And because He is the fear of the Lord, then the fear of the Lord is not something that Zion runs from. It's something that Zion runs to. The fear of the Lord is not a detriment the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 through 6. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times. Now, it's really hard for me not to preach an American message right now. But just hang on to that. He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation. Wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It makes us who we are. It is the means by which our status as children is secured. It is often difficult. It is always glorious. And it is always good. Let's pray.